What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Seiska. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Danny, what the hell is going on is we've got an Obama administration scientist here with us on the podcast today to talk about climate change. And he has written a book called Unsettled, which is basically taking on a lot of the myths and the fallacies that we all take for granted in the climate debate. And I want to share just a couple of things to kick off our discussion about what he says. He says, quote, heat waves in the U.S. are now no more common than they were in 1900. The warmest temperatures in the U.S. have not risen in the past 50 years. Humans have had no detectable impact on hurricanes of the past century. Greenland's ice sheet isn't shrinking any more rapidly today than it was 80 years ago. The net economic impact of human-induced climate change will be minimal through at least the end of the century. And that's not all. Tornado frequency and severity are not trending up, nor are the number and severity of droughts. The extent of global fires has been trendingly significantly downward. The rate of sea level rise has not accelerated. Crop yields are rising, not falling. Global atmospheric CO2 levels are obviously higher now than they were two centuries ago but they're not at any planetary high. They're at a low that has only been seen once before in the past 500 million years. Danny, that is not what I hear coming out of the Biden administration. No, that's for sure. The Biden administration has declared a a climate emergency. We should just remind everybody, there's no emergency at the border, but there is a climate emergency. He said that our Pentagon should put climate at the center of its calculations, ditto for the intelligence community. And we are going to spend a vast amount of money, even vaster than the amount of money that we're already spending, if anybody can conceive of that, in order to combat this climate crisis that Dr. Tunin really questions. You know, it is fascinating to me as an outside observer to try to balance what the people who want us to light our hair on fire about climate say with what a scientist like Dr. Koonin says, because everybody accuses everybody else of cherry picking their information. And for the average Joe or Danny who lives in the United States, Getting to the bottom of this is very difficult. Agreed. And look, he is very clear that the climate is warming. This is happening. But he's basically saying that this is, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, he's going to tell us in his own words uh, in a few moments, that this is not quite the existential crisis that is, it's made out to be by the zealots of the climate change movement, the political zealots, who are often abusing or distorting the true science. And he is suggesting that we need to be aware of what's happening rather than trying to destroy our economy in an effort to stop something that we probably cannot stop. We need to find ways to adapt. This is going to unfold slowly over a period of a century between now and 2100. And the economic impact is not quite what the zealots say it is. 
And we can adapt to this. We have, can find ways to figure out how to live with the changing climate that don't involve destroying our entire economy, putting entire industries out of work, trying to speed technological transformations, not through improvements in technology, but through stopping and pushing out old technologies before the new technologies are ready and proven. And we can do a lot of damage to ourselves along the way if we don't put this whole phenomenon in proper perspective. I think it's also important to understand that there are, just as there are implications to warming, just as there are implications to the kind of temperature change that Dr. Koonin says are absolutely happening, there are implications to the choices that we make about how to mitigate this. Well, first of all, there's the spending, there's the profligate printing of money, but there's also the costs and the efficiencies of the methods that they're using to mitigate. So electric cars, right? or as you like to call them, coal-fired cars, because of course that's where the vast mass of our electricity comes from. So coal-fired cars have these batteries in them that aren't terribly efficient, but worse yet, we have no idea what to do with them. So, you know, are we gonna have a yucca mountain, you know, where we shove all the batteries and isn't that going to have implications? So that's number one. Number two, Solar panels, I love solar. You know, when I lived in Israel 30 years ago, in Israel, this is technology that's been in use forever. In countries where there's just, you know, for eight months of the year, there's nothing but sun. It's awesome to have a couple solar panels on your roof, your hot water heater is fueled by it. I think that's fantastic and capturing that when you can is, is a great thing to do. But we need to recognize that the solar panel industry is now dominated by, oh yes, the People's Republic of China. Ditto, by the way, for this question of rare earths. So, you know, you want to talk about wind power. We've all seen those windmills sort of moving lazily around, you know, screw the birds that are getting killed by it, because apparently those guys are no longer in vogue. But we need to understand that a vital component of windmills is made with rare earths, and the Chinese have developed a monopoly over these particular rare earths, which are these very specialized kinds of metals that are used in the construction of these. All of that has real implications. And I think that the problem is not that we shouldn't admit that there are important things to talk about in terms of mitigating the impact of climate change. The problem is that the mitigants themselves need to be discussed as well. Is that a word, by the way, mitigant? I don't know. <laughs> it is now. You made it, it a is word, now. Here's the other thing is you need to balance things in public policy. Like science, we need to listen to the science. Everyone, that's become the Vogue phrase now. Let's all listen to the science. But science doesn't always determine policy because it's not just science that needs to be taken into account. Anybody who's looked the last year under this COVID pandemic, all the lockdowns, the school shutdown, the economic devastation that has been caused by these lockdowns, and this is basically the model because the reason we had all this is because we listened to the scientists and we put the virologists and the immunologists and all the CDC in charge of our economic policy, right? And we didn't balance the danger of the pandemic with the danger of the devastation that's done with kids feeling suicidal, with drug addiction, with all these other things that we've explored on the podcast, right? And so we just instituted these lockdowns and now we're seeing even now that we've got half the population vaccinated, they still don't want to let it up. They're still wearing masks outside. Only half the schools are open. You know, we can't get the scientists grip off of our economy, right? If you liked that, you're going to love climate science running our economy. 
because that's the exact mindset they bring to it. Climate change is the only thing that matters and we are going to do any damage to the economy we have to in order to stop this danger. And I'm sorry, but that's not the only thing that gets taken into account. The jobs of people in West Virginia matter and you can't just destroy their lives and destroy their economy because Mark, your, it's not just your... West Virginia. I'm sorry, you know, that's know, just, everybody just, likes just to one say, example. Yeah, no, but it's a great example, but it's not just West Virginia. It's industry in general. You know, it's everybody who works for BP and Exxon. It's everybody who drives a car. It's the company that you work for. You know, this is the problem. The problem is not that these companies shouldn't take a hit or that some job categories need to change, or that retraining needs to happen. I think those are all very valid conversations. The problem is this is totally a one-sided conversation. And that's exactly what I discovered. When you express that, hey, I have some questions. I have some doubts. Maybe is this worth it? You are immediately labeled a climate denier. And in the context of- Which is meant by the way, to evoke to be, Holocaust denier. Which is, is, is disgusting, right? It's disgusting. The inability now to have a debate about anything in America and the fact that you are basically accused of being a person beyond the pale if you ask these questions is, I think, so detrimental to balance in our society. Anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing what's gonna happen to Dr. Stephen E. Coonan, who wrote this book that we're talking about here today. His book came out this week, it's called Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. And Dr. Coonan's bio is a particularly interesting one. He's a physicist, he's a leader in science policy in the United States. He was the undersecretary for science in the US Department of Energy under who? What, Donald Trump? No, 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 no under President Barack Obama. And he was the second person who ever held that title. He was the lead author of that, that department's strategic plan. He did their quadrennial tech review. He's a professor at NYU in their Stern School of Business. He's a pretty serious scientist. And uh, I'm really excited about our interview. Here's our interview. Dr. Coonan, welcome to the podcast. Ah, good, good to be here chatting with you. So it seems like every time we have a weather event of some kind. There's a hurricane or there's a forest fire or there's a uh, heat wave or a drought or something like that. People jump up and say, ah, climate change. And everyone just assumes climate change is the cause of this. And in your book, you note that that's not actually true. Can you tell us a little bit about what the actual data says about this? Yeah. So we need to distinguish between climate and weather. That's a very important thing to understand. Weather is what happens every day. Climate is a long-term average of what happens every day. Typically about 30 years we average over. And so, you know, if you see a storm this week and you don't see another one for a few years, that's not a climate, or at least not a change in climate. But if you see an unusual one this year, and then again next year, and then again a couple of years later, and they start to add up and average over 30 years, then that's a change in climate. And, you know, what we're seeing, and this is again in the official records, not Steve talking, is that yes, the average temperature of the globe has warmed by about two degrees Fahrenheit over the last century, since 1900 or so. But many other weather phenomena show no changes outside of normal variability, even as human influences have grown. 
over the last 60 or 70 years. So, I mean, are there more heat waves now than there were 100 years ago? Is there more human impact on hurricanes? Are there more forest fires than there were? Is Those there are great questions. For? Yeah, so let's do the heat waves first. If you look in the official U.S. government report from a couple of years ago, issued by the U.S. Global Change Research Program, uh, what you see is that heat waves across the 48 U.S. states are no more common today than they were at 1900. And the warmest temperatures across the country have not gone up in more than 60 years. Just kind of surprising, right? Even as the globe has warmed. Another thing you find in there, buried somewhat, you got to go to page 700 and something to see it, is that there have been no detectable human influences on hurricanes over about 100 years worth of data, which is, again, a little bit surprising. If you look at forest fires or wildfires more generally, we've been observing those from satellites since 1993 with pretty good confidence all over the globe. And the global number of wildfires has gone down by about 25% over the last 17 years. And that's despite the very active and horrible fires that we saw in California and Australia last year. Last year was one of the least active fire years globally. Now, a lot of that decline in fires has been due to the fact that people are not burning forests anymore for pastures. And so certainly the climate-related fires are a lot less than what we've seen over the last 20 years. You have this new book out, Dr. Coonan. It's called Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. What I'd like to do first is step back a second, because in some ways, this is a book that is focused directly on the prevailing narrative that has taken hold. Mark's asked you about some of the aspects of that narrative, but I would love to hear, you know, just sort of the big picture for somebody who's tuning in for the first time here. Why are you questioning this? What is your big point? You know, I'm not questioning anything. I see it as my job as a scientist to help inform society's decisions, but not to determine them. And when I hear people talking about existential threat, climate crisis, and invoking the science, I'm led to recall a line from the movie, The Princess Bride. And you may remember, there's a scene where Vizzini keeps saying inconceivable. Well, you know, people keep saying the science. And Inigo Montoya, if I were he, I would say, you keep using that word, the science. I don't think it says what you think it says. And in fact, when you read the official UN and US government reports, you find real surprises, some of which we've been talking about. And so I think it's very important that everybody be informed about the real state of what we understand and what we don't. And then we can have the societal debate about exactly what we do about it, bringing in values, priorities, intergenerational equity, north-south development, and all the things that get tied up in this climate discussion. Give us a couple of really important data points. As I went through your book, I went through a lot of the articles and some of the criticisms, there were things that really stuck out to me. Among them, you know, a lot of the mitigating efforts will have absolutely no impact you know, during our lifetimes or even the lifetimes of our children. So you know, where do you think we're going most wrong in the public understanding 
of this catastrophe, this disaster, this apocalypse. Yeah, alleged catastrophe. Um, <laughs> um, so look, let's suppose we decided CO2 really is a problem and the effects that it's having on the climate are something we really need to forestall or prevent. What people don't understand is, first of all, that CO2 is not like other effects on the environment. If we stop emitting CO2 today, it would still be there in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And so as a consequence, the CO2 is just accumulating in the atmosphere. And if we manage to reduce emissions a little bit, it'll just accumulate at a slower rate, but it'll still go up. If we want to even stabilize human influences through CO2, we've got to take global emissions to zero in the latter part of this century at levels that people would say would be safe for the environment. That means not only the US and Europe, but it also means the rest of the world. And right now, emissions are bigger from the rest of the developing world than they are from the developed world. And they are growing much more rapidly because people need energy to improve their lot. And fossil fuels are right now the most reliable and convenient way of doing that. And so, you know, the fundamental problem is who's going to pay the developing world not to emit? And I've been asking that question for 20 years and nobody's given me a good answer. So I don't think we're going to be able to stabilize, let alone reduce human influences by, let's say, the end of this century. And so we've got to look to other courses of action. And I think the course of action that will be most adopted and will be effective is adaptation. People have learned how to adapt to changing climates. You know, we had the little ice age 400 and some odd years ago, and society certainly survived. It wasn't easy in Northern Europe, pretty cold. Crops were not doing very well. Uh, in a modern society, we have much greater resilience and understanding and levers to be able to adapt. After all, societies live from the top of Hudson Bay down to the equator, and they do just fine. And it will not be sudden, it will be gradual, and human ingenuity will certainly get us through this, if not allow us to prosper. Now, that's true in the developed world. The developing world is more difficult. And I think the best thing we can do for the developing world is to help them make progress as quickly as possible. That, of course, takes energy, but also to strengthen their institutions, their capacities to execute large projects, to make graceful changes in their society. That's what the world is going to do, because trying to reduce emissions, let alone reduce concentrations, is just inconceivable, to use the uh, Princess Bride word again. <laughs> I think that's such a hugely important message that we have to adapt rather than try and like bury our economy. And I was looking at some of this, the data, you know, Biden says he wants to reduce uh, carbon emissions over the next 10 years to 50% of 2005 levels. And correct me if I've got the data wrong here, but during the COVID lockdown last year, when the economy ground to a halt, people were hiding in their homes, you know, air travel stopped, all these different things. We only got down about 21% below 2005 levels, which is at least 30% towards Biden's goal. So if the economy was shut down and we still couldn't get to those levels, how on earth are we going to get to those levels in 10 years? Yeah, well, you know, there are two big things that one would go after, and the Biden administration has, I think, properly identified those as the necessary things. The most important is electrical power generation. In power generation, not only do they want to 
get emissions down, but they want emissions to go to zero by 2035 from the power sector. And that means no coal and no gas and all wind, solar, hydro, and I think they grudgingly will say nuclear. And boy, that's a really heavy lift. It would cause the power sector to change at an unprecedented rate. And my worry about that is the reliability and stability of the grid. Wind and solar, which are the current favorites, have two drawbacks. Well, they have several, but two important ones are that they're intermittent. You only get generation when the wind blows or the sun shines, but you need electricity 24-7. And the other is something that's not widely appreciated. You know, our electricity goes up and down at 60 times a second, 60 cycles. And that stability is caused by heavy spinning metal flywheels in the generators. Wind and solar don't have that at all, and it's going to be a real technical challenge to have the stability of the grid that we have now as we get to larger and larger amounts of wind and solar. So I'm very doubtful that we're going to achieve the goals in the power sector, and many people who have much more knowledge and experience than I in the utility sector basically say that's not going to happen. We'll reduce emissions somewhat, of course. Coal is going away because gas is cheap, but getting rid of gas is going to be really difficult because it provides the swing, if you like, in the electricity system. You know, you have to generate electricity when it's needed, and that means you turn on and off generators during the day. Gas turbines are wonderful for that. Uh, We don't have anything else like that right now. And the other sector that the administration has correctly identified is the transportation sector reducing the use of gasoline and diesel. That was, by the way, the main cause of U.S. reductions during the lockdown. People just stopped moving around. And there you have to, well, first of all, they hope to put in more stringent cafe standards, fuel economy standards for the vehicles. And in fact, when I was in the Obama administration, we had some, we put into place some pretty stringent vehicle standards above 50 miles a gallon. It's doable. You can build cars like that. It's just that they cost more money right now because they have fancy materials, and fancy engines. But the main route will be through the electrification of passenger cars. And right now, plug-in vehicles account for about 2 or 3% of sales, which are in turn only 5% of the total vehicle fleet. And so it's going to take a long time. Electric vehicles, in principle, have many benefits, but we haven't really realized them yet because the battery technology isn't there, the charging stations aren't there, and frankly, the grid is not yet ready to take the extra load that will be caused by everybody charging up their cars. So I think we will eventually get to electric cars being predominant in this country with the attendant benefits, but it's going to take uh, 30 to 40 years. In 2019, the presidents of the National Academies of Sciences said the magnitude and frequency of extreme events are increasing. And the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is sort of the authority, (laughs) kind of slapped it back and said that should be treated with, quote, low confidence. What I can't understand is why it is that people like you people like UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change are now no longer driving the narrative. The narrative is being driven by politicians, by you know teenagers, and I think by the press. 
what's happened? Why has this happened? So, so a, a small correction, because it's really important to get the words right. The statement by the presidents of the National Academy said certain types of extreme events are increasing in frequency. Not all. And in fact, that's a really telling caveat, because when you look at the actual data and the IPC statements, very few types of extreme events are actually increasing. Why has the narrative become dominated by politicians and uh, non-experts? And I think that, you know, it's like bad money drives out good. Uh, the scientists are cautious. We tend to caveat things. We don't seek the limelight. I never thought I would be writing a book like this, but I would hope that a plain exposition of the facts that is accessible, complete, and unbiased, as I try to do in the book, will in the end carry the day. What I would like is that for thinking people to read the book, they will no doubt find some things in there that they will say, hey, that's a surprise. I didn't know that. How come I didn't know that? And what else am I not being told about climate? And I think if we start holding the media and the politicians a little bit more accountable to a factual basis, then we can have some interesting conversations and maybe get to a better place in terms of a discussion of what we should and shouldn't do about this. Well, I mean, the myths that you blow up uh, all over the place in this book are remarkable. One of the things that I noticed, because I remember as a kid and growing up in the 1970s, I distinctly remember reading, I can't remember if it was Time Magazine or Newsweek, big cover story, the coming global ice age, right? And you actually say in your book that global temperatures decreased from 1940 to 1970. So they were actually people thinking that the ice age was coming. And yeah. you also point out that Atmospheric CO2 levels are obviously higher now than they were two centuries ago. They're not anywhere close to a planetary high. They're actually some of the lowest we've seen in the past 500 million years. million years, yeah. And, you know, what I hope people will take away from the book is not only those surprises of fact, of which there are many, but also the manipulation that goes on in the reports. And I give some examples of, you know, the report says this in the front of the report, but it actually says something contradictory in the back of the report. And that's due to, I would say, all right, I'll use the word a corruption of the authoring and review processes of these reports, which is then amplified by most of the media who love a dramatic catastrophe story. Well, it's true that they do, but I think that there are some people who suspect that there's another agenda behind this as well. Before we get to that, and I do want to get to that, I want to ask you some questions based on the criticisms that are being thrown at you. So we have your book, we have a couple of reviews from the Wall Street Journal, from National Review, there's one in Forbes, there's one on Fox News, but not a lot of other places. Right? This is not the kind of information that the New York Times, the Washington Post, right, you know, MSNBC is throwing around with great excitement. And so I went looking for criticism and I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to it because I think that it's very important you know, for us to sort of be able to figure out who the truth tellers are in this uh, business. So you know, inside climate news, not something I read that often, I realize. <laughs> so you always know that it's bad when something starts out as Kunin describes himself as a scientist. <laughs> so I, I had, 
I had a sense of, of where this was going, but their criticism of you is that you are taking figures out of context, that basically you're doing what we suspect a lot of other people are doing, which is that you're cherry picking information in order to make a case. And I would love to hear what your rebuttal is. So I've been very careful to take summary statements and summary figures out of the reports. Moreover, I have been very careful to word what I say myself to be consistent with what is the figure show or the data shows. If this is cherry picking, I probably have taken most of the orchard. You know, show me what is in the report that contradicts what I say. And I don't think that's there. And, you know, some of the things I discuss are there in the media, whether they are small things or not. It really is important to show people what the true science is about some of these things. You know, record high temperatures in the U.S. is a small factor in all of climate science. But nevertheless, it's what you see in the media. And I think it's really important to show people what the science actually says. So we've been doing a lot of podcasts recently about obviously over the last year about the COVID crisis, right? And one of the things we found, you know, if the scientists are held and put up on this pedestal, that they're always right, they're always driven by data, they've always got the facts. We lay people just have to listen to them. And what we found with the pandemic is that the scientists got a lot wrong. They missed the pandemic because they were following a flu model, which doesn't travel asymptomatically flu, whereas COVID did. They told us not to wear masks because masks don't protect you. And then they changed their mind about that. They told us we had to have six feet of distance. And then it turns out that wasn't based on science. There's so many things that the scientists got wrong and had to self-correct. Can we extrapolate from that experience that maybe the climate scientists are getting some things wrong too, and that we really don't have to take what they're saying as gospel and that maybe some of these things ought to be questioned by other scientists and challenged and that this is not religion and it's not yeah. heresy to say that maybe they're not getting it right and maybe their yeah. assumptions are wrong and maybe their, their data isn't 100%. Is that, is that fair? I think it's fair. Certainly you always challenge science, but some things are less challengeable than others. Of course, we can give some simple examples. The law of gravity, nobody challenges that. Um, except Einstein did in 1918 or something, he was right. But for practical purposes, you don't challenge these things. But I think two things about science in the COVID situation are worth highlighting. One is that it was novel. And it's the first time we had something like that in modern society. Spanish flu maybe was like that in the early 20th century. And the scientists were feeling that way. It was tough. We didn't understand what uh, the virus how it transmits, how it affects people, we still don't really. Uh, there are lots of mysteries in that. So I think they didn't put the appropriate caveats on their understanding. Presumably over the next year or two, things will get more certain and one can have better guidance. A second point I would make, even though the epidemiology science was feeling its way in real time, the vaccine science was spectacular. And we saw or have seen the payoff of three or four decades of investment in molecular biology and virology. And that was an amazing achievement. The last thing I would say, and here the COVID situation does have a parallel with the climate story, 
is that the scientists can adequately, I think, illuminate risks, certainties and uncertainties. And we saw that, you know, Tony Fauci and others were doing that. But where I think they started to overstep their bounds was to become normative instead of descriptive and to say, you've got to do this, you've got to lock down, or you've got to do A, B, and C. The balance between opening up the economy and taking risks associated with infection is fundamentally a societal decision that's driven by values, risk tolerance, and so on, much like the climate decisions are. And I think the scientists on the public health side got a little bit out of their lane, as in fact, a number of the climate scientists have also gotten out of their lane. I think you're making a hugely important point because what happened in the COVID crisis was is that virologists started setting economic policy and we had to weigh the danger of the virus with the damage that was done by the lockdowns and all the businesses that were shut down and all the people who lost their jobs and all the kids who were kicked out of school. And it was driven entirely by the scientists sometimes incorrectly, and we weren't balancing that against the economic risks of what they were proposing. And it seems like this is the same thing in climate, isn't it? Whereas the scientists are saying, we have to do these things because science says X, and people who stand up and say, well, yeah, but I also want to, don't want to put you know, millions of coal workers out of work, and I don't want to kill 10,000 jobs in a pipeline over this, that we have to balance the economic risk with the science. Is that a fair Comparison. I think that's, that's, that's a very good description. And I would add in the balances that you were talking about with respect to climate, maybe even more importantly and morally, do you want to deny 3 billion people adequate energy that they absolutely need for their development? And I, you know, I think it's immoral not to do that, but it is one of those balances that has to be done. And those balances should be set by our elected officials, president, Congress, governors, mayors, and not by the scientists. And the scientists in the climate business, I will tell you, at least as you read the reports, have over-egged the custard, to use a British phrase, (laughs) exaggerate the hype in the reports for the public. When you look at the real science, it's not that. We saw what happened this week, right? Which is that yet another judge threw out the moratorium that the CDC issued on evictions, which was sort of the quintessence of scientists deciding to engage not just in economic, but in social policy. But I mean, these questions, economic and social policy are really important and fascinating. Mark was about to ask you about the economic question. You worked in the Obama administration, so I'm going to guess that you probably are not, you know, the rabid ideologue that Mark Thiessen is. Uh, there on the other hey, side. So, um, but I, I think for a lot of us, and I've gotten in a lot of trouble for saying this, but I think for a lot of us, the exaggerations that are being trumpeted about climate science are not about hysteria about climate. What they are is an agenda-driven set of statements that's much more about changing the nature of our economy. In other words, undercutting the work of corporations, undercutting big business, undercutting carbon-based industries, all of these sorts of things, which we can debate, but which are actually much more about economics than they are about climate. Is that wrong? No, I I think that's right. I'm I'm not going to get into people's motivations. You know, I, I think... The job of a scientist informing policy is to 
you know, sort of stay neutral, like a judge or the military that try to stay apolitical. But it certainly has that effect. What annoys me greatly is when people hook the rationale for those changes onto a climate crisis. And it is the abuse of science or its use as a weapon in these political debates, incorrectly in my view, that really gets my goat. And that's why I've decided to write this rather plain spoken, accessible book about the science. Well, let's talk a little bit about the economics of this, because you watch Al Gore's movie and you and you listen to, uh, you You've know, watched Al Cos- Gore's you- movie. No, I'm, I didn't. I've watched the reviews of it, but I did not. But, you know, you hear Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say that we've literally got 12 years before the planet is dead. And, you know, all these exaggerations. What actually is going to be the economic impact of if uh, global temperatures rise by three degrees Celsius by 2100? This is, of course, a dicey business. You know, economics is called the dismal science. And I think the economics under climate change is kind of a doubly dismal science because you've got so many uncertainties. Nevertheless, both the U.S. and U.N. assessment reports talk about what the economic impact, net economic impact would be of a rise of three degrees or so. And let me remind you that three degrees is two or actually three times, because depending upon where you count, two or three times what Paris is supposed to be limiting us to. And what they say, it's about 4% impact on the GDP of either the US or the globe in the year 2100. Now, in the year 2100, if the US were to continue to grow at 2% a year, which is relatively conservative by historical growth, the US economy would not be $20 trillion as it is today, but it would be $80 trillion. And a 3% hit on that would make it $78 trillion or $77 trillion instead of 80. In other words, we would be delayed in our growth by a couple of years. This is said rather plainly in the assessment reports, except it's in the back of the reports. It's a little bit obscure and you've got to do a little bit of math to understand it, but nobody has contradicted me in saying that. And in fact, when I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, pointing this out, I got a very nice note from a prominent energy economist who said, I'm glad you made that point. So the headlines that say economic disaster, uh, climate's going to crash the economy, they're just not founded in the science, what the official reports say, right? So where Representative Ocasio-Cortez gets her numbers from, I don't know. I hope that she reads my book, and then maybe we can have a conversation. The same is true, by the way, of, of Greta, okay? I read her book. There it is, okay? I did read it, and I hope she reads mine. (laughs) Uh, So my exit question for you, Steve, so I'm actually very selfishly asking this question. So a couple of years ago, I got in really a lot of trouble for saying that I really didn't understand anthropogenic warming, unfortunately, on national TV. And you're not allowed to say that kind of thing. And the reason I said that is because the one thing I do know about climate is that we've had a bunch of ice ages, including the mini ice age that you referenced. And yet we've come out of those ice ages without cars, without human beings. And my understanding is that there are also cyclical elements here. Why have those been given such short shrift when we talk about climate? So what you need to understand is that the influences we're talking about, natural and anthropogenic, 
And I'm glad I can use that word uh, since you've used it already. These are very small influences on the scale of what goes on in the climate system all the time. They're kind of at that half a percent or 1% level. The system is very noisy. It's chaotic. It varies a lot. So what actually happens with the climate system is really the sum or the totality of all the influences and all the natural variables. Yes, we've had ice ages. They happen every 50, 100,000 years. And we understand them pretty well. They're caused by the way the Earth goes around the sun and the tilt of its axis. Uh, they happen on very long time scales. We also have very short time scale variation. El Nino events happen every five years, roughly. They last a year or two. They influence the climate, as I think we know in the U.S. The carbon dioxide is a human influence. It's not the only human influence. Aerosols are another human influence that actually cool the planet rather than warm them. They're growing on a pretty rapid timescale of 50 years or so going up. And so it's different. But a challenge is sorting them out from the natural variations, some of which, by the way, besides El Nino, we also have natural variations that take 50 or 70 years to cycle. Uh, they're called the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And, and so they have names. And you can find them there in the temperature record. If you look at the temperatures of the Earth in the right way, you can see them go up and down on 60-year timescales. So the challenge is to sort all that out. And that's really tough because we don't have complete observations. We don't have observations over a long enough time. And the oceans, which are an important part of the climate system, are really tough to observe. So that's why you know, I, I have titled the book Unsettled because there's a lot of important things about the climate we just don't understand yet. So I'm going to end on a really heretical question. You've described the economic impact in terms of GDP of climate change, in terms of reducing GDP. Here's the heretical question. You point out that Greenland's ice sheet isn't shrinking any more rapidly than it was 80 years ago. But there's a lot of people who are saying that the polar ice cap is going to shrink to the point where like, the Northwest Passage will be open all year long. Well, that would be pretty good for GDP. <laughs> that, would, that would open up a trade route to Asia. Uh, you know, that, that there's, there's downsides to that in terms of ocean levels, but there's upsides to that in terms of trade and again, a balance. Are there yeah. positive economics of a warming planet that we are not taking into account when we think about these things? Yes, there is indeed. The foremost one that people talk about is the greening of the planet. And again, this is NASA data, not Steve's data. When you look at how green the earth is as a whole, it's greened up spectacularly uh, over the last 40 years or so. The leaf area index has increased by, I can't remember the exact number, but 30% over most of the globe. And that's due to the fact that plants love carbon dioxide. It fertilizes them. The increase in crop yields that we have seen since 1960 is in large part due to agricultural practices and plant genetics, but in fact, uh, the CO2 has helped as well. So this is not at all an unmitigated disaster, as people would have you believe. We adapt, and you know, I think we'll learn to take advantage of whatever changes happen rather than simply tolerate them. That's what humans do, and we're pretty good at it. And on that very optimistic note, thank you so much for joining us. This is absolutely okay. fascinating. Good. Really, well, I enjoyed reading your book and understanding these issues better. Good. 
this is a really interesting discussion because you have experience in this. You transgressed the temple leadership. <laughs> you crossed the line and to heresy when you when you, and you got slammed for it because this really, you know, I used phrases like zealots uh, to describe this. It really is become a religion, right? You know, this is not necessarily about science. This is about belief. This is about religion. And what Dr. Kunin has basically done is slammed and nailed his 95 theses on the church of climate change and said, listen to this, here's what's wrong with what you're saying. And I'm fascinated in how their response is going to be because he is going to be labeled a heretic by the temple leadership, just as you were. Well, and in fact, all he is, is a Protestant. <laughs> if we may, may stretch that analogy. Look, you know, in a country yesterday, you know, we're recording this, we're going to release it in a few days. But yesterday was the National Day of Prayer in our country. We've had this National Day of Prayer for more than half a century here in the United States. The president, as all presidents have, issued a press release. But in that press release, celebrating the National Day of Prayer, the word God never appeared. In a country where God is not okay to evoke on the National Day of Prayer, it's no surprise that people are looking for other totems. It's no surprise that people are looking for other ways to define themselves and to define who is inside and outside the orthodoxy. It's a shame for the American people, but it's also just hugely dangerous, as indeed these sort of religious debates were 500 years ago, because heresy gets punished. People are canceled. Thank God nobody is burned at the stake anymore or auto defayed by the Inquisition. But we can that bring is, that back, that is, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, believe me, I, I, having felt it, I can tell you it, it's unpleasant, although I suspect auto defayed is worse. But there's a, just another issue here. And I really liked what you brought up about the problem of science that we've learned with COVID, which is that science is... Yes, of course, it's science, but there is an element of art to it as well. And the science of today is not necessarily the science of tomorrow. You know, Galileo taught us that. Newton taught us that. Einstein taught us that. And this blind adherence to factoids, and they are factoids by the self-appointed bishops and, and clerics of this new religion, like AOC, like Greta Thunberg, is just really, I think, intolerable. Well, I don't want to go get too deep into the Catholic bashing as a Catholic, but, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, look, <laughs> again, I started out in the beginning of the podcast talking about you know, the comparison to the COVID lockdown. The reality is that during last year's lockdowns, when we ground the economy to the halt, when everybody stopped going out, when all so much business shut down, factories shut down, people stopped driving, people stopped taking cruise ships, economic activity fell dramatically, we only got 20% towards Biden's goal of where we should be in 10 years in terms of COVID emissions. That should tell you something. If we can only get to 21% of the Biden goal and we're 30% short, then how the heck are we going to do that in 10 years? We need to understand- We're going to bring back the auto da fe. We're going to kill everybody who disagrees with us. There and you go. And that will definitely slow things down. Well, that'll certainly reduce carbon emissions from those people at least. But you know, <laughs> the truth is the most important thing I think he said is that we're not going to be able to stop climate change. We need to find ways to adapt to climate change. And there are going to be positive adaptations and negative adaptations, but we've been, mankind has been adapting for centuries to the climate. 
And, you know, the reality is, is that we cannot destroy our economy and destroy the livelihoods of millions of Americans, because that's what's going to happen whenever government bureaucrats come in with a 10-year plan or a five-year plan, as we learned from the Soviet Union, to remake the economy in order to achieve socialist goals. They cause more destruction than they do benefits, right? And this is what we're talking about. Climate is the new five-year plan of government. When the government comes in and says, we're going to develop the technology, we're going to fund it, we're going to do all this, guess what? The free market does it a lot better, a lot faster, and a lot more efficiently. And we certainly should fund research into new technologies. We should certainly encourage the development of electric cars and clean energy technology. But let the free market decide when the era of fossil fuels is over and when we can depend on alternate energies. And that is a transition that's not going to happen in five years or 10 years or 15 years or whatever it is. It's going to happen over a half century to a full century before we have that. And we mess with the free market at our peril and quite frankly, at the peril of the lives and livelihoods of the American people. And quite frankly, even of our own country. We had Dan Jurgen on the podcast last year talking about how there's national security implications to this too. We are now an energy superpower. We are the largest producer of natural gas in the world. We've supplanted Russia and the Soviet Union in terms of a lot of fossil fuel production, and we have energy independence. And this has implications for our relations with China. It has implications with our relations with India, has implications for our relations with Russia and, our, and all the rest of it. So, you know, we go the wrong way on this, and this could impact our national security in ways that really could be an existential threat to our country. So I think the right answer is, you know, two things that we've emphasized in this conversation. It is adaptation and it is honest debate. You know, shutting down debate doesn't get us anywhere. So in that interest, folks, if you disagree with us, if you want to tell us why we're wrong, if you want to tell us <laughs> why we're right, we'd love to hear from you. And get out there, buy this book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us What It Doesn't and Why It Matters by Steve Coonan, because you know, I think as we did, you'll learn a lot. But no matter what, we're grateful to you for listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Our producer is Alexa Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Um.